Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 28, The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents. I saw a thing while I was out, and I forgot to send it to you. So I'm going to send it to you now if I can find the photo and see whether you've seen this before. So I can get, And now we're going to get your live reaction. Ooh. So Nigel just sent me a picture of a book that is Terry Pratchett, the Discworld graphic novels. Is it a specific novel? Like a series of novels? How does this work? So I've never seen this before either. I'm guessing from your reaction you haven't, but by all accounts... I have not. It seems to be a collection of Color of Magic and the Light Fantastic as graphic novels. Interesting. I knew that some of them were adapted into graphic novels, like Eric, for an example. But I didn't know that there was, that this existed. I do love graphic novels, though. It's like 20-something euro in the bookshop, which is not too bad. I was working at the bookshop. You you got a new oh, job this is over a the last couple of months. Ah, when I'm not working in a bookshop, you can find me spending my my free time in other bookshops. Nigel exists in bookshops now. Uh, and then I go home and then I make podcasts about library. So, and then I do a podcast where I talk about books. Nigel's life revolves around books. Although I did hear that you made some Terry Pratchett recommendations over the holidays in the bookshop. I did. I, I did a lot of, of that. Yeah, people would be bringing up like color of magic or more usually and then i would talk to them about it i even i mentioned the the podcast offhandedly sometimes they'd be like i have a friend of mine and like for a podcast and then i would just sort of like slip it in there (laughs) so you're proselytizing both pratchett and the podcast so good on you for for marketing and plugging books (laughs) promoting promoting literacy (laughs) oh my god i have to stop myself from like having these conversations it like when they're negative like anytime anyone shows up with a colleen hoover book or a harry potter or any of that disgusting tat that they make for harry potter where it's like this is a a door stopper which has got an ugly plastic mold of dobby on the end harry potter wasn't good Yeah, it's it's all tat, so it is. I think from your context, it would be kitsch here, is yeah. what we would call it. Yeah, well, yeah. kitsch, it's like kitsch, but with the added layer of, like, actually just shit. Because kitsch can be good. Ah. In certain circumstances, right? Yeah. But it's like, Harry Potter wasn't good. You were just nine and it was your first taste of magical realism. Read another book. Fantasy, urban fantasy, school fantasy, like there's a lot of those. And in fact, we're about to talk about a fantasy YA novel, Terry Pratchett's first fantasy YA novel, which is, I believe, much better than Harry Potter. We'll see what your opinion is on it. Do you want to know the most rancid combination someone came up to the counter with? Ooh, yes, please. Uh, It Ends With Us by Colleen Hoover and 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. And I had to physically restrain myself from being like, I I really want to be like, no, I'm not. No, no, (laughs) go go put those back. Oh, I was going to say, I feel like if we lived in the same town, 
that I would just be like going into the bookshop all the time and be like, what do you have for me today, Nigel? And I would just read whatever you gave me. Like you could just like give me something. I'd be like, all right, I'm going to read this. I was talking about a book and then one of the managers turned around and was like, how many books have you read? Like, like, (laughs) and I was like, is this, is this like a condemnation, Sean? And he was like, no, but it seems like you've read fucking all of them. It's a lot. Yeah. This seems like also a really good time to plug that uh, my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, is doing a 2023 reading challenge. My co-host and partner, Sam, actually put together a 12-month reading challenge with bonus trimester challenges. You can do it without Storygraph, but it is a lot easier if you have Storygraph. And Storygraph is free, so... And it's not Amazon you're supporting then. Because, like, I use Goodreads a lot, but I also implicitly know that... I'm giving Amazon my custom. Yes, we love Storygraph because it isn't Amazon. Um, it has a better UE, I think, than Goodreads. And it is created and owned by black women. So, mm. you know, give black women your money or your business, as it were. But yeah, so we're we're having a lot of fun um, with that. And we're actually having monthly episodes on our podcast about the reading challenge as well. So I will put the link to our Monkey Off My Backlog Discord in there if anybody in the show notes, if anybody wants to check it out. But you can mm. also check it out on Storygraph at Momble, M-O-M-B-L, 2023 Reading Challenge. But in the meantime, let's talk about the amazing Maurice and his educated rodents. Which I finished like an hour ago. <laughs> I finished it last night. Much shorter, though. Much easier to get through than, than some of the ones we've been reading before. Yeah, this is something I will say. It was more like easily readable. I think that might be because it's YA, but... Yeah, this was his first YA children's fantasy novel. It was published in 2001. It's the 28th novel in the Discworld series. It is a new take, sort of, on the German fairy tale about the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And it's a parody of sort of the folktale genre in general, as well as like the children's mystery genre. He actually won the annual Carnegie Medal from British librarians for this, for the best children's book published in the UK, uh, which it was the first time he had won something like that. So it was a big deal. There are a couple of adaptations. One of them is a BBC Radio 4 uh, 90-minute dramatization from 2003, um, which featured David Tennant as the voice of Dangerous Beans. There's also been a couple of stage adaptations, one by Stephen Briggs in 2003 and then in 2011. And then there has also been an animated film adaptation, which I have not seen yet, even though it came out last month. Have you seen the film adaptation yet? I started watching it, and then I was like, I should actually finish the book first. I think we should have a bonus episode where we talk about it. I just haven't been able to access it yet because I'm in the U.S. Yeah, well, because, like, we had Sky. Hugh Laurie plays Maurice. Amelia Clark is in it. Uh, Like, it's a really stacked cast. Like, who else? Gemma Arterton, Hugh Bonneville, David Thewlis, David Tennant. Is Dangerous Beans again? Peter Serafinowicz. I like that. I like I like Peter Serafinowicz's death for some reason. Peter Serafinowicz also just looks like a, a young Sean Connery. It's like kind of disconcerting. I can see that. I don't know Himesh Patel, but he plays Keith. He is... I guess. Himesh Patel, he was in Yesterday, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I saw that film. 
Well, I'm looking forward to watching the film. We should definitely do a bonus episode where we talk about the film. But today we are talking about the novel. So quick summary. Maurice the cat has the perfect scam. Ever since they ate magical trash behind the Unseen University, he and a band of rats known as the clan have been sentient. Add in a stupid-looking kid with a pipe, and you have a rat piper racket. But when they roll into the town of Bad Blintz, things go wrong very quickly. I have the same coffee. I love this coffee. This is my first physical Discworld in a while. What are your first thoughts about this novel, Nigel? I really enjoyed this. It was like obviously it's not the first YA Discworld book I read because I've read some of the Tiffany Aching ones before. So like I'm used to that kind of slant of Discworld, but I I don't know. It's like I was saying before. It's like a really easy, fun read. My copy's only um, two hundred eighty nine pages. So it is a lot. Would you believe shorter. it? Mine is also two hundred eighty nine. Oh yeah, it's almost like we have the same copy. Crazy. It is much shorter than some of the ones that we've been reading lately because his adult books have been getting bigger and bigger and more complex. And this one is kind of a return to that short or shorter, I should say, story. Mm. I don't think it's any less complex. It's just simpler in terms of the language that's being used. It's a lot easier to read than some of the adult ones that we've been reading lately. That's not a knock against YA, right? That's part of the, the medium. I definitely think you're you're right though that it's no less complex than the other like more geared towards adult books. So I feel like you could read Discworld probably at any age of your life, whether you're like sixty or whether you're twenty, or you know if you're fifteen and you just you start with like a YA book and you just go through the rest of the Discworld books. Because like I th- I think this slots really well into like thematically what the Watch books are doing, but from the opposite side. I mean, I was definitely reading all of these books when I was 15, so I don't want to make it sound like you can't read the other books if you're not, you know, um, an adult. But I do remember reading this and The We Free Men and being like, oh, like this is especially when we get to Tiffany aching. I'm the same age as Tiffany. So I was always like, oh, like I no, I mean, like when I was reading them, (laughs) I was the same age as her. So it was it was really interesting to see kind of this change in terms of like the language and like you said, the slant, but to see some of those themes still being pulled through, you know, he's not making it too simple or any less dark in some ways, but it is more geared towards a younger audience and a younger reading level. Yeah. There's some of the most fucked up things that I think has happened in a Discworld book in this one, like at least in recent memory, like feet of clay. There were some pretty dark, like, things happening you know like there's always kind of dark yeah. and challenging subject matter but like in terms of things that actually happen you know like feet of clay is, is up there um like men at arms obviously a lot of the watch books but like carpe jugulum as well yeah this is this is surprisingly dark and i don't know whether that's like leaning into the like fairy tale genre when you have a character that's like based off of the the grim the brothers grim you know, and how like dark they were. The sisters grim, yeah, as it were. <laughs> I love their names. Is it like a- Agoniza and Eviscera Grim? Yeah. Like it's like <laughs> pretty dark. Which it, whereas like what were the names of the original Grim brothers? It was like Jacob, I think. Oh, I don't know. That's a really great question. The Grim, the brothers. Sorry, the brothers. Grim. Yeah, Wilhelm and Jacob. 
That's wow. a very boring names. I mean, for like, you can, you can see why they go for the Brothers Grimm. I like Malicious Ants a lot better. What I like as well is there seems to be like, when you look up Wilhelm Grimm, like, and he has brothers, like you have Jacob Ludwig Carl Grimm, which is his full name, other brother. But then he has like other brothers, which I just, I always love like celebrities who have siblings that aren't known. You know, like the whole third Hemsworth yeah. brother thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you've got Ludwig Emil Grimm. Carl Friedrich Grimm, Friedrich Grimm, Friedrich Hermann Grimm, Ferdinand Philip Grimm, and Jörg Edward Grimm, according to Google. So, like, there's a lot of Grimm brothers. Like, there's a lot of Marx brothers. People had a lot more kids, I think, back then, too. I mean, I'm one of eight kids. My granddad was one of 13. You come from a pretty big family. Like, that's kind of unheard of in the States. Like, there are big families like that, but they're very, like, it's few kind of far between. Unheard of here in Ireland nowadays. Like, it was a, a much bigger thing, especially, like, settled families in the countryside. Mm-hmm. You know, because, like, we've been in the same area for, like, 200-ish years, my mother's side of the family. So, like, you know, there's a lot of history there. But nowadays, when people hear that, like, people my age who were born in Ireland, they're like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, 60 years ago, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's that's normal. Yeah, that's just a family. Yeah. What are you talking about? You only have two siblings? What's wrong with your family? Like... <laughs> Yeah, but this is actually a really good transition into talking about sort of one of the central things of this story, which it is a retelling of the Pied Piper in Überwald, right? Which is kind of, we've already established that Überwald is kind of our German Eastern Europe type of place in in the disc world. So we're returning to Überwald. Um, this time we're in the town of Bad Blintz. I think it's funny that Überwald towns tend to have bad <laughs> In their mm. title, Uberwald and Lenker towns have bad in their title a lot of times. But as you mentioned, it's also definitely a reflection on Grimm's fairy tales and how these fairy tales are often very dark. You get Militia talking about her aunts and, and some of the fairy tales that they came up with. And Keith is always like astonished at how dark some of them are, which I think a lot of people are when they go back and they read those original stories because those stories have been so disnified in our context. Like, um, how did the prince, how did the prince wake Sleeping Beauty up? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Or, uh, Cinderella's, uh, stepsisters cutting off their toes to fit their, their feet into the slipper or Snow White's stepmother being forced to dance in red hot shoes until she dies. Right. As punishment for her crimes. That's pretty fucking funny though. Like, we've kind of had this before, back when we read Witches Abroad, right? Which is definitely more of a commentary Mm. on fairy tales in general. But this one seems to specifically want to talk about the relationship between fairy tales and children's stories. Because this is for a more young adult audience. I liked it because it does continue on the conversation that started in Witches Abroad. But in Witches Abroad, it was like everything has to follow the story and the story goes a certain way and kind of bends things around them. And so that's like Wash Militia. Is that her name? Yes, Militia. Yeah, I was like that. I said it in my head and my brain was like, no, what? That That's a group of armed men. Um, Militia. <laughs> Whatever her name. However I guess, you pronounce I guess if her you take if you take the M off, it is Alicia. So you could pronounce it Militia. Yeah, Militia, she believes so strongly in these things because, like, that's what she's grown up with. And then 
Maurice and Keith and all them are like, well, it's not like that. Like, the scene where they go into the shed and they're trying to find the secret passage, I think, is, like, the most concrete example of, of this type of thing where it's, like, it's great to believe in stories. And I think this is, this is like, where it's going to children. You know, where it's, like, it's fine and all to believe in stories and stories do have a certain power. Like, they eventually find the secret passage in the shed. But you shouldn't set all of your stock hoping that these things are going to happen because the stories say they're going to happen. Sometimes an orphan is just an orphan. He's not the third son of a king. Sometimes people will just lock you in a shed and break your penny whistle. Like, like the map and the territory are rarely ever coterminous. And I think that's what this is trying to teach children, that it's like, it's good to believe in things, but also like, you know, don't set your stock by them. Because the Grimm's fairy tales, the fairy tales that they were collecting were for children. And part of that is because, one, people, the idea of the child as like this innocent, you know, not adult, you know, somebody who who needs to be protected and coddled and preserved. That's a very modern concept. Yeah, that um, comes from a Victorian perspective. And it also comes from a very white perspective in a lot of ways. And, you know, like the white children are the ones that need to be protected, but maybe not the people we make work in the mines anyway. Yeah, or the ones you send up the chimneys who die of smoke inhalation. Exactly, exactly. But like when you start getting like Alice in Wonderland and like those types of stories, that's kind of when we start getting this idea that there are children and like we need to tell them certain kinds of stories and we need to edit those stories and, you know, we need to protect them. Before that, that's not how people thought of children. Children were small people. <laughs> and so, as evidenced and, you know, by like, Renaissance paintings galore, those are just adults who are small. <laughs> they're so creepy like i can't there's so many pictures like there are so many pictures of the madonna and child where i'm just like oh my god this is like the beginning of a horror movie uh they look like megan from <laughs> this is film. some benjamin button shit <laughs> but like the grimm's fairy tales were for children um and the reason they were so fucked up is that they were often supposed to be either cautionary tales right Things that mm. you tell children to keep them from going into the woods, for an example. If you if you go into the dark woods, you're going to get eaten up by a wolf, right? And that was supposed to scare children into not wandering off. Or they were supposed to be incredibly moralistic, right? Like this idea yeah. of don't be an evil woman and you won't have to dance in red hot shoes until you die, right? We had an old book of fairy tales that, like, it was the original ones. And at the end of it, some, like... The publisher obviously had printed like moral colon and then it would t just tell you what the moral of the story was, which I think defeats the point. That's what the original fairy tales were. They weren't supposed to be like dreamlike or, you know, believe in yourself. It That's not that's not what it was. It was supposed to both entertain and serve as a caution. And I think that's what this book is trying to intersect with. Right. Because it's mm. like these stories have power because they frame our view of the world, which is what, which is abroad. And it, to some extent, The Last Hero was also kind of about this. But at the end of the day, those also can get in the way of you understanding that the world is inherently random and that that's not 
really how things work, that bad things do happen. And I think it's interesting that they compare, they put, what Pratchett's doing is he's putting the Grimm's fairy tales right next to more modern children's stories like Mr. Bunsey, mm. which is clearly a Wind in the Willows slash Beatrix Potter type of yeah. story. And Nancy Drew, because that's what Militia is, right? She is supposed to be like this Nancy Drew. Like you 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 go and you find out the small mystery in the town and then everyone gives you a tea and and you know pats you on the back. That's Nancy Drew, right? Or the Hardy Boys or, you know, like, you know, those types of stories. And so by putting the fairy tales uh, next to those stories, what Pratchett is saying is he's not only just looking at, like, the intersection between different kinds of stories for children and the different ways we look at children, but also the idea of what are these stories doing to the way that children view the world? And is it inherently good or bad or both for them? And I don't know how germane it is to the discussion, but, like, what I think The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents has to this conversation that, like, Grimm's fairy tales pre-Disney didn't have is coming out of things like the Satanic Panic in America, you know, where, like, all of a sudden there was this, like, increased policing on what content children are consuming and what messages that's portraying, you know, like... D&D, mm -hmm. um, like, it kind of got into a bit of that in Stranger Things, uh, but, like, by all accounts, what it was actually like for people who lived through it was much, much more horrific, uh, you know, and, like, then the, the whole thing about ritual abuse of children in schools and stuff, and, like, that whole conversation then led to an increased awareness of, like, what, what is actually happening to children and what can go on in the home, but there was this, like, increased... Mm -hmm awareness of of media and like what is it changing the children like all those headlines of please won't someone think of the children which is coming back by the way especially in the u.s there's so many book bands now and trans people are groomers and they're trying to make more trans people and you know critical race theory in schools and like won't somebody think of the children we have to ban all these books there is a woman here in South Carolina that's trying to get books banned in schools and she's threatening the school with reporting them to the cops for disseminating pornography that like that is a real thing that is happening and it's happening in states all over the place what book would get them reported for disseminating pornography Oh, I can tell. Uh, Sam has the whole list. She's writing about it right now. But um, there's mm. like 99 books on it. Because I know like Looking for Alaska was banned in certain schools. John Green made a video about it a couple years back because it had a scene where a character has sex. Where he, What's his name? Miles has sex. But it's also like, yeah. it's very clear that he's not like actually into it at all and all this thing and it was like oh for sexual content and he was like it's the most like unsexual scene because the whole point is that he's like not in a relationship he's happy in and he's not happy in that moment <laughs> and they were like no it's got sex it's banned from schools right so a lot of it like tony morrison they always are coming after her books um so things like the bluest eye we need to leave tony morrison alone i know ask the passengers a lot of these are lgbt yeah. Books as well. Things We Do in the Dark, Almost Perfect, All Boys Aren't Blue. Let's see what else. I'm trying to find like an actual list that I can see online. A lot of them are also like books about race. 
So a lot of Kendi's mm. books, Abraham Kendi, like Stamped, for an example, is one that they keep coming after. In current discourse, a lot of times what's considered pornographic is anything LGBTQ related. It doesn't even have yeah. to have sex in it. That That is kind of what, what I'm getting at when I say that, is that it is a return of that panic, that moral panic of, you know, these these people are groomers, they're trying to get our children to be LGBTQ, and by exposing them to this, like, that's what they're doing. But they are coming hard after schools and librarians this time for stocking these books and, like, threatening them with legal action, which so far the, uh, the, play, the county I live in, the, the sheriff's office has declined. Good. But all it takes is one sheriff that shares those views. And a lot of people have pointed out that it's not about books. Like, people think, oh, well, you know, whatever about books, right? But no, it's, it, you know, this is coming out at the same time that there are proposed laws in the South Carolina legislature that are trying to forcibly detransition trans youth and adults and to to make it so they can't access the medication that they need. And so, you know, it... It's not just about books. It's about, you know, banning people, too. Yeah. What gets through to people is things like the problem with Jon Stewart, where he argued with that representative, and she comes out with all these things, and he says things like, oh, what an incredibly made-up statistic. Or John Oliver talks about, why can't we just leave trans kids alone? And it's great and all that, like, that's breaking through, like, on the banning people aspect. But, like, when trans people actually say it, no one listens. And so then, like, Certain people only listen them when, like, a cis white guy on TV says it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, like, we're never going to get anywhere if people don't actually listen to, like, like, if a child is experiencing gender dysphoria and goes, you know, to get medication for that. And then it's like, well, with the child is experiencing this, the doctor who knows this, like, and how to, you know, deal with this and help the child knows this, but, like, a bunch of people who those who that doesn't apply to are like, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, it is the standard uh, of care that they're going against. Like they are going against all the medical advice from these boards, these medical boards in the US. But also it affects, like they want to bring back conversion therapy for for trans um, youth. I'm so, I mean, so that's happy. that's actually, yeah, that's actually in these laws that they're proposing. So, yeah, it isn't yeah. just about the books. Like, when we talk about banning books, that's just, that's like a sign. That's like a, that's like a canary in a coal mine situation. Yeah, even that now is relevant to reading, like, for me, Maurice, for the first time, like, it, it's like, children are far more resilient to things than people give them credit for. And not in the sense that we should expose them to a bunch of trauma, but, like, they can deal with things. Sherman Alexie, as problematic as he is as a person, has a really good article about Who? this, and so does Roxanne Gay. Sherman Alexie. Never heard of them. He wrote... I'm trying to remember the name of his book. The Absolute True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. That's, like, his big book. Um, He's an indigenous person in the U.S., and he writes really well on those issues. Unfortunately, he has a bad Me Too problem. Oh, God. But Roxanne Gay, who does not have a bad Me Too problem, also wrote about this. They have both very eloquently written about the fact that a lot of children experience trauma. You can't pretend that you're, by protecting them from these books, that you're protecting them from trauma. And... 
wouldn't you rather them be able to read about people who have experienced this trauma too, rather than pretend that the trauma never happened? Children are not automatically immune from trauma just because they're children. Like, we wish that they were. Nobody wants that to happen, but it does happen. And you have to deal with it instead of pretending that it doesn't happen. Because, like, me and my siblings now are having these conversations where, like, we're sitting down, uh, you know, on our own and we're looking back at stuff that happened in our childhoods. And we're like, oh, that was definitely fucked up, but we just, like, dealt with it. And now we're the people we are because of it. But up until now, we've never actually, like, stopped to unpack that. And now we're like, okay, I guess that wasn't normal. Now, it was nothing too, it was nothing too severe, you know, like, or whatever. But it's like, that's definitely not good that that happened. You weren't locked in a, uh, in a cellar by a couple of rogue rat catchers? <laughs> no, no, neither was no. I put, neither was I put into a cupboard at school where the walls are covered in broken glass. Yeah. I, I've been listening to the Matilda the Musical soundtrack a lot recently, so the choke right. is on my mind. Um... Like, there's a lot of that, that the the specter of that haunts Maurice. See, listeners, that wasn't, that wasn't a diatribe. It was germane. It was germane. We brought it back. Can we make a, an unofficial slogan for the podcast? Nanny Ogg's Book Club. We swear it's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we talk about Terry Pratchett. But yeah, I I think that there is a lot about storytelling that we're going to unpack as we go through some of these characters and some of these other themes as well. I was trying to think back. I think this is the first one since like the very beginning of this podcast where we have a totally new setting, totally new characters. You know, besides the death appearance, right, and the death of Rat's appearance, there are no cameos. In this, mm. there's no Captain Carrot, there's no Rincewind. You know, this is a completely different town, even though we've been in Uberwald before. One of the witches uh, appeared, but it was just a random old lady, you know? Yeah, it's just a lady. Yeah, so it is a it, it is a completely new place because it is it does kind of feel like after the last hero wrapped up some storylines, right? Like brought closure to like Rincewind's storylines, for an example, and Cohen's storylines, it does feel a little bit like Terry Pratchett's starting to move into some new territory with some of these stories and some of these characters. Yeah, because this is, what, book number 28, is it? Out of 28, 41? yeah. Yeah. It is a standalone book. This is not the beginning of a series or anything, um, but it is interesting that we're starting to move into that direction. But there is sort of this, like, tri-pronged story happening. And it is interesting to me that Keith, who would normally be, like, the protagonist of a book like this, is not the protagonist. Like, Keith and Militia, while they have some important roles to play, they are very much minor characters compared to Maurice and some of the rats, right, Um, that are really the major focus of this book. But the setup of this book is really this war between rats and humans, a war that they say has been going on since people first had houses, right? Um, This idea that you have these rodents that are very specific animals that are considered vermin by humans because they tend to steal food. There is this sense that humans have the upper hand in this because they're intelligent to a certain extent, although this book does mm. 
play with that a little bit. And they, you know, can do things like set traps and they have dogs and cats and poisons and that kind of thing. But really what this book seems to be saying is, is that uh, what we do to rats, we tend to think of as fine because they're vermin. But actually, it's a pretty extreme form of animal cruelty that we tend to just normalize and think is fine. I swear this is also relevant. It reminded me of there's a video game called Spec Ops The Line where it's one of, it starts off as one of those like shooty games that seems like pro-military propaganda. And then and I think this is the best shooter of all time. You can't go further than this because this essentially tanks the whole like you can't go any further than this. All of a sudden it becomes this intense critique of the military's action in you know like in countries abroad where like you're told to you're told to like attack what this city which has supposedly been um what's the word when you get rid of all of the people there you you make them all leave what's the word i've forgotten the word evacuated that's the word it's supposed to have been evacuated so you go um you do whatever and you use white phosphorus and then the game makes you go there and you realize that none of the civilians were ever actually taken out. And the game points the camera at these like people who have been absolutely burned out with white phosphorus. There's mothers holding children trying to shield them from this weapon. And it goes, why do you think it essentially? Why do you think this is fine? Why do you think it's fine to do this to certain people? Why, when you give someone a gun and you send them to another country, do you think it's fine to do that? Like, if someone did that in in America, you'd be like, well, that's a domestic terrorist. But a soldier can go and do that in another country, and that's just war. That's just and fine. I think it's the, yeah, it's the same thing. Because, like, there's a line in The Amazing Maurice where, where um, the rat catchers think they've been poisoned with rat poison and that they're going to die. And they're like, that's not human. And they say, well, no, that's very human. Mm-hmm. That um, animals yeah. never animals never do that thing. Only humans do that, and we think it's fine. Animals don't poison each other, like snakes do. But that's venom, and that's part of their right. nature. They produce that and in their bodies, and they'll eat and they'll eat what they poison. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like there's that Mark Twain quote: "A tiger is an evil because it has no no conscience of what it does. It it doesn't have the concept of morals." And this goes back to themes like in Guards Guards, right? Uh, where it's like, I'm a dragon. Like, I'm supposed to do this. You're human. Um, what's your excuse? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I never said that what I did was good. Yeah. It's also like a fun read because we have mice in the house currently. And we have traps. And this is something that I think about. So my brother was baiting a trap and we put, I think he put a bit of cranberry sauce on it or something like that. And he wrapped it in cling film. And I'd never seen this done before. And I, I said, why do you, uh, why are you wrapping it in cling film? And he said to me that the mouse is going to spend a little bit of extra time trying to get through the cling film to get to the cranberry sauce, which means it's more time putting pressure on the trap. And so it's a better chance of getting it in the trap. And then he went about it and I couldn't, stop thinking about how unnecessarily cruel that was. Yeah. I, I don't want to turn this into some sort of moralistic lecture or whatever. Right, but I mean... Just how, like, casually cruel that was. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like... 
it's not great to have rodents in the house. Like, I think we could all agree that, like, you know, rodents do contaminate food and crap everywhere and that kind of thing. And so, like, it isn't good to have rodents in the house. Like, it's asking us to interrogate the way that we treat rats as opposed to the way we treat other animals, specifically. Because even, like, Maurice is treated differently than the rats are. Like, nobody cares if a cat is somewhere, right? He even brings this up several times. Like, nobody cares if a cat is in a hayloft or if a cat is around because they assume that a cat is, like, taking care of the vermin. Of course, the rats here are rats, and so we can think of it in an animal cruelty sort of way. But, of course, you can also think about this metaphorically. Like, what are the people that we tend to think of as vermin? So this gets back to your thing about the video game, right? Um, what are the Who are the people that we think are acceptable to treat this way as opposed to other people? There is historically a certain group of people that have been viewed exclusively as vermin by bigots. So it's not it's not too far to uh, it's not too far to extend that and go, well, why, you know, like, why would you do that to a human also? But and it's considered normal, like you said, like, uh, you know, using poisonous gas in other countries. Normal. Right. Stuff that we would be horrified if it happened here. It works on both a literal and a metaphorical level, which I think is why it's so brilliant. Well, no, no, because also, like, with the proliferation of nuclear weapons and stuff and nuclear power plants, I I understand that their planet got too big to function off of everyone having a little wood stove in their house and riding horses and stuff. Our world got too big and too fast, and nuclear power is kind of cleaner. But, like, when you look at the things that happened to people who lived in Hiroshima and Nagasaki or happened to people who lived in the vicinity of Chernobyl or Fukushima... Um, when those power plants blew, you know, it's like, that's something that only happened because of humans. Like, humans made this problem, whether they knew it at the time or not when they first invented nuclear power. That's something that indirectly you, you've been incredibly cruel. It's clean but cruel, like the traps that don't kill in Maurice. And I was also thinking even about, like, where we get our, like, the working conditions, right, of of both... I mean, we tend to think of this as other countries, right? Like, oh, other countries have sweatshops and like, isn't it fucked up that we buy clothes from places that would treat other people this way? But we can't even say that anymore because Amazon exists and we all know what the working conditions in Amazon, you know, warehouses are like. And so like, you know, even here in this country, you know, we have in the US, we have workplaces where we're like, oh, it's fine, right? It's fine that they're treated this way, that, you know, they're having to to pee in water bottles and get back right back to work. You know, it's fine that they have to work in like a hundred degree weather. And, you know, and so it, it does like you, you can extend this to all sorts of people who are considered like other. And like, why do we think it's fine to treat people that way? The only good thing about people having such exorbitant repositories of wealth, like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos is, um, is that it's, it's going to be so much fun when they fall. Like, Elon (laughs) Musk has lost hundreds of billions of dollars recently from the stock in Tesla plummeting, from his disastrous buyout and management of Twitter. There's a certain joy to the bigger they are, the harder they fall, and people who put themselves in that position. You know, like like the rat catchers in this, where they're just... they're, They're stealing from people and then tricking them. In the same way that I think Amazon has tricked us all into thinking this, like, 
commodious lifestyle of ordering something and having it appear on your doorstep the next day from China or from wherever, you know, like depending on where their factory or the manufacturer is. That's not normal. But we've all been fooled into thinking that it is. Yeah, and also the idea of, I'm glad you brought up the rat catchers because that's another thing too that fits into what we've been talking about. They're stealing all this food and creating this scarcity, right? Like this horrible scarcity where people are starving. They're doing it to make money, right? Like they have all this money buried under the floorboards because they've been selling this food to someone, you know, that that takes it away. The river traders, yeah. But they're literally scapegoating or scape ratting these rats, right? Like it's a it's a it's a plague of rats, right? They're the ones eating all the food. They're ruining everything. Like that's why it's food is so scarce. And this is a, a tactic we've seen so many times, right? And it literally will lead to stuff like genocide. Things like I mean, in Germany, it was about it's all the Jews' fault that that things are so bad, right? Now it's it's all the trans people's fault. Yeah, or COVID is all chi- the Chinese fault. Right, exactly. It's a it's a tactic to get people to blame other people and to enact violence against other people in order to distract from what's really happening, which is the people in power are creating scarcity so they can get rich. Yeah. Is this is this our angriest episode ever? I think so. Like, I mean, it's very anti-capitalist in so many ways. And it's it's a YA metaphor. That's the thing is that like he is he's saying all this through the metaphor of the Pied Piper, the Plague of Rats. To return to a thing I said before, like, this is the same kind of thing that the watchbooks deal with, but, like, Maurice and the rats are, like, avowed criminals, and they're, like, anti-government in the sense <laughs> yeah. of, like, they don't want to... Does that mean you're the government? <laughs> like, they don't want to be caught for their crimes, but then they also implicitly know that governments don't have the best interest of people at heart. And I think that I I think that's really funny, but also like interesting that like everyone across the spectrum, be it a normal person, a cop in like in Discworld, a normal person, a cop or like a criminal who is like, I mean, we shouldn't we shouldn't fail to acknowledge that when Maurice and the rats show up at Bablins, they were going to scam the town. Right. Like even they know that like exploiting people is bad. You know, there's this like like ostensibly at its core, Maurice is a is a book about like economic scarcity, working conditions. The of course incarnation of all these things that we have been just talking about is of course the quote unquote main villain or main monster of the piece, which is the Rat King, who is human created, right? Created out of extreme cruelty. What do you think about the Rat King and the way that the Rat King... The the plan of the Rat King to wreak vengeance on humankind. Uh, the Rat King is so cool. And it's also gives me a near-perfect intro to Nigel Quotes the Mountain Goats for this episode. Oh, perfect. On the album uh, Getting Into Knives, they have a song called Rat Queen. And so it, it's all about like, so, like meek, sub, meek subjects by torchlight come to pay their respects. As foretold by the ancient texts, lines snaking down the sewer, reverent hush upon the crowd. One by one we approach the figure in the shroud. New dreams, new dreams for the rat queen. Brand new dreams, great vision, something heady and threatening on the boil in the kitchen. Emerge from the storm drains and take to the streets. We who have never once tasted the stench of defeat. Victory sweet as the dregs of the fast food dumpster. 
look how they jump when we show up like they've just seen a monster. I think that's like pretty much one to one, like kind of goes across to the the Rat King spider in this and also then like Rat's plan at the end, like the educated rodents, the clan, which also now that I think about it as well, to return briefly to the thing about Vermin and Spec Ops, the line, what really haunted me was, like, was Dark Tan, yeah, good, and we'll go on and on until these tunnels are safe from end to end, then we'll do it again until these tunnels are ours, because Dark Tan gripped his sword but leaned on it for a moment to catch his breath, and when he spoke next it was almost in a whisper, because we're in the heart of the Darkwood now, and we found the Darkwood in our hearts, and... For tonight, we are something terrible. He took another breath, and his next words were heard only by the rats closest to him, and we have nowhere else to go. Ultimately, it comes back to, like, like I, I think what the Rat King is doing is bad, but it, it ultimately comes down to the core of, like, they're all rats. Like, when a rat's in a corner, it's just a rat. And they've all been confronted by the fact that, like, there's been this immense cruelty perpetrated against them. And that they react off of fear in large numbers. But, like, the the Rat King obviously has the power of mind control, which is never fully explained why he has mind control. It's interesting because the Rat King Spider, um, which also Spider, very interesting name for a Rat King to, to call itself. But the idea that the rats together that it gives them like their minds are connected in some way and that makes them more powerful although i think it's interesting that it's like they have mind control but they can't read minds they can just see what the person sees like through their eyes and hear what they hear which and so like maurice closing his eyes and walking you know in the dark is really interesting too i think as a a strategy but it's a nice follow-on from lords and ladies as well yes the the elves yeah absolutely Mm. the rat king also reminded me just really briefly of the nutcracker the the mouse king which has seven heads and you have to yeah oh wow i've never like encountered the nutcracker yeah so the the rat king has seven heads and you should read the eta hoffman book the original because it, it definitely, I think, intersects with this book in some ways. Maybe not as much as uh, Wind in the Willows and the Beatrix Potter Tales. But the, the fact that it is like a mouse king who's fighting a, a nutcracker. And he has the seven heads and, and all of that is very interesting. But yeah, like he, the Rat King is like an avatar of vengeance. The idea that like he, they it whatever you want to call it whatever pronouns that that the rat king wants to go by spider wants to go by uh all any it seems to be it sees itself as being something that can win this war against the humans it says two dangerous beings but humans like to believe stories they would prefer to believe stories rather than the truth but we we are rats and my rats will swim believe me big rats different rats rats who survive rats with parts of my mind in them and they will spread from town to town and there will be destruction such as people cannot imagine we will pay them back a thousandfold for every trap humans have tortured and poisoned and killed and all of that is now given form in me and there will be revenge 
It's very yeah. melodramatic, but I love it. But it also does speak to an awful lot of narratives from oppressed classes, either in mythology or in like actual history, where eventually it gets to a boiling point and someone will come out of it to speak for them. Like, mm. essentially as an avatar of that. Now, granted, this is a horrifying creature made of eight rats fused together um, at the tails. Because it's also like, when they actually encounter, like when, when Spider comes into the light, it describes the blind rats moving forward, but it seems to, like, describe the knot in their tails separately, and that's Spider. Um, which I think, I don't know why that's freaky, that distance. And all of the eyes, like the scene where Peach is like, uh, where they're there and she lights the match and suddenly you see all the eyes, right? And they all move in unison uh, mm. with each other. Like, it, it's very, very creepy. I'm not going to lie. I might start calling rats from now on Kikis because <laughs> I love how they keep calling them Kikis. And uh, Keith calls them Kikis too. And you notice that Militia eventually starts doing it as well. I love their first interaction where she's where he says something like... Or whatever, and she's like, "Was that a rat swear word?" Yeah, <laughs> Keith is like almost part of the clan. I feel like, like he might be more part of the clan than Maurice is. So the the other thing I want to talk about before we really get into the characters, although this could be an entrance into starting to talk about some of the characters, is that ultimately Dangerous Beans, who the Rat King tries to recruit, Spider tries to recruit Dangerous Beans because Dangerous Beans understands in the same way that spider does like spider sees dangerous beans as like a someone who who could get it who has that kind of power that spider has we're not so different you and i yeah it's very join me and we shall rule the galaxy star wars reference oh yeah (laughs) i think it's interesting that dangerous beans rejects this And I love what he says, and I wanted to ask you about this. You don't think of them, nor are you, for all that you say, the big rat. Every word you utter is a lie. If there is a big rat, and I hope there is, it would not talk of war and death. It would be made of the best we could be, not the worst that we are. No, I will not join you, liar in the dark. I prefer our way. We are silly and weak sometimes, but together we are strong. You have plans for rats? Well, I have dreams for them. And I would love to know what you think about the two paradigms that are being set up here by Dangerous Beans. What is the difference between plans and dreams? I I like that it's the best we can be instead of the worst that we are. Because, like, and also, to, like, briefly get poetic, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after Glay from Robert Burns. What the rats... There's this, this, like, drawing of similarities and a comparison being drawn between rats and humans, like, specifically the clan because they can think and talk. But, like, one of the things which sets humans apart from animals is that, like, we can discernibly dream. And so, like, that's something which, like, that's something which gives us hope. I don't think any other animal, or at least we haven't proved it, experiences the concept of hope. Whereas, like plans and orders are fairly simple to follow you know whether you're a pack hunter you know the leader of the pack tells you to do whatever or you follow like if you look at birds flying in the sky you can watch geese fly in a v formation that's like that's a plan that you set out and you follow just on instinct it's just like a thing where you implicitly understand it and you don't question it whereas like to have a dream is to like like, especially about something, if it's not, like, a nonsensical dream, is to look at something and, like, implicitly know that it's wrong. 
or bad or could be better. And then, like, you have to figure out what can make it better and, like, how to achieve Like, it might be unrealistic or unachievable, but your brain has identified that there's something which could be improved. That can be a self-actualization thing or that can be, like, a societal change thing, which I think it's more so what Dangerous Beans thinks of for the clan. I'm really glad you brought up the idea of hope because this reminded me a lot of Ernst Bloch and his Principle of Hope, which is uh, his utopian work. Ernst Bloch did a lot of work with utopia. He's one of the the like best utopian theorists, I think. And not Thomas More. <laughs> yeah, well, he did a lot based a lot of his stuff on Marx and like class critique and that kind of thing. But he talks a lot about dreams, specifically daydreams, because mm. he says that daydreams are a form of utopian thinking. The idea of like dreaming something that is better than it is now. So, and he inclu- he includes like fairy tales and myths as like part of that as well. Yeah. Like this expression of utopian aspiration. So hope, he says hope is participatory. The waking dream is what he calls mm. hope. Hope is infectious too. Right. And he he is interesting because he doesn't think that concrete utopia can exist. That utopia only exists within the not yet. This like place where we're like, okay, things are bad now, but eventually they're going to be better because we're dreaming them better. And Mm. this interacts in a really interesting way with Maurice and specifically Dangerous Beans because Dangerous Beans, for the longest time in this book, dreams about an island, right? Where the rats can all go and they can have this utopia. And it is a utopia because like, Thomas More's utopia is an island, right? Like most utopias have these very like distinct borders to them. And what better than an island to have your utopia on because the borders are very easy to delineate, which goes back to Toni Morrison who says, you know, you can always tell, you always have to ask whose utopia this is by who's not allowed into utopia. That's a whole other thing. Yeah, but it's also like as well of mice and men. Well, I just, like, I think about that as well, where, like, that dream changes and sours, but, like, it's a farm, like, far away from everything. And Lenny is also, like, obsessed with, he's obsessed with rabbits of different colors and stuff, and that's a dream that keeps them going for a while. Uh, Like, everyone has, like, utopia, most interesting ones are where people conceptualize them as, like, a place away from something, like a small kind of parceled out bit, where it's like the rest of the world can happen, but we have our own little one. Right, but Bloch says that that's a false dream, that that's something that cannot happen. And so it's not like a concrete utopia cannot exist, but because by the time you get there, it's already some other form of oppression. And so like the idea here is, is that when Dangerous Beans is forced to abandon this idea of the island and to actually work with humans to make things better, that's a more achievable thing with utopia it's not perfect because we're never going to get to utopia but we can still hope and dream and we can work towards that right we can specify what we want and eventually work towards getting there that's more block that's the not yet type of dream the fact that it's daydreaming as well is like an interesting thing because it's a break from like i think that comes especially from the creation of like the working week and how many hours you can legally work, you know, that separation in the like that happened like in Victorian times where there were days given over for leisure where all of a sudden now you had space to daydream. Like if your life is entirely taken over by the production of 
material by the generation of capital you don't necessarily have that time but if you're able to like daydream at any time during the day like not just when you're asleep that's like a, a victory in and of itself i should really read this block fellow you really should um you should read Ernest Bloch, and then you should read Jose Esteban Munoz, who does, uh, he wrote the book Cruising Utopia. He builds on Bloch, but specifically, yeah, I will send you the names of them um, because Munoz uh, specifically does queer Bloch. Like he takes Bloch and makes it queer. And I think a lot of it comes from the way that they view Mr. Bunsey, the book. Right, yeah. And, like, especially then, like, it, it's Dangerous Beans who gets really, like, angry at the end, right? Where, where where they recover the book and he's like, oh, it's just nonsense. It's fiction, right? Yeah. Because they treat it as a religious text for the first half of the book. Exactly. Like, and he's one of the, the biggest proponents of it. Obviously, you have, like, sardines who he dresses up in a hat and he, you know... And Dark Tan has the sword and he has pockets. And so each of them is kind of like embodying things like that. But we have a clear break with Dangerous Beans where we see like what happens when people become disillusioned with things. And because like it's a children's book. So you feel like the stakes shouldn't be that big. But like when when you think about it, like the death of an idea... And having to like pick up the pieces and un- like try and figure out where you go from there, I think that's more fascinating than like a lot of the things he does in the book. I think what he represents that like death of the ideal and having to like move on because like the like the message of the book is like well stories aren't really the actual world, and that's what I think Dangerous Beans as a character is. You're absolutely right, because I think that that intersects really nicely with Dark Tan, who is able at the end of the story to say, like, and he he has that conversation with the mayor where the mayor is talking about how much he loved Mr. Bunsey when he was a kid. And Dark Tan is able to say, like, well, waistcoats are stupid. Like, it's tool belts that work. You have to use what works. And so I think Dark Tan, even more than Dangerous Beans, because Dangerous Beans is disillusioned by Mr. Bunsey and has to let go of that idea. But Dark Tan is able to say, no, there are good things in Mr. Bunsey, right? He's able to say, he's able to use the dark wood metaphor to motivate the rats, right? This, we are the dark wood and this is ours, right? Like um, it, you know, it's in our hearts. But at the same time, he's able to discard what doesn't work about Mr. Bunsey. Like he takes the things that work for them and uses it, but he's able to say like waistcoats are stupid. They don't work on a rat's body, you know? And so, yeah, it it becomes a more workable system between the two of them. It's an interesting sliding scale with ham and pork on one end, dark tan in the middle and dangerous beans on the other end where ham and pork finds it too difficult to acclimatize to this new world where he's so used to, just fighting and being strong for dominance. And like, you know, he says like, oh, back in my day, we didn't think, you know, like thinking wasn't a a done thing. And Dangerous Beans is too, believes too strongly in the ideal, like, and this idea of the future that when it's shattered, he becomes disillusioned with it and doesn't really know what to do. And where like Dark Tan is in the middle. And that's why he's, 
a good leader for the clan is that he's able to like mediate between those two and come up with a solution that actually works. Although like Sardines does need to tell him like, look, you've seen, you've seen the bone rat, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You totally nourishing you look too. the bone rat. Yeah. yeah. No, but like that conversation where Dark Tan says to him, you know, you, like you could be dangerous. You think almost like Maurice. I like a good triad of leadership, which is what we're getting here in this book. For for those people who are listening who are Trek fans, Ham and Pork is McCoy, Dangerous Beans is Spock, and Dark Tan is Kirk. Just going to throw that out there. I have to say, I love Ham and Pork. I think I loved him more in this book that I did when I first read it, you know, all those years ago, because I've only read this book once before this. Ham and, I was so sad when Ham and Pork died. Like, I was like... Oh, man, like, because he's just so like, I just love him as like an old crotchety rat who I mean, think about how bewildering it must have been to go from like being a leader who relies on that animal instinct, you know, like the wolves from Fifth Elephant, right, to suddenly having to think Mm. about things like the dark behind the eyes and, uh, you know, like thinking your way. way through a situation rather than just reacting right like that has to be so difficult he went through a paradigm shift in his mid middle age right he wasn't born into it because he's like trying his best like because there there, there's the understanding that dark tan is a better leader but dark tan defers to him because like dark tan is able to mediate he knows that like ham and pork needs to be the leader for his Mm -hmm. own sake without that he has nothing like in the same way that Dangerous Beans is kind of nothing without his dream. Right. And so, like, you have all those moments where they're like, it seems that there's going to be a standoff and Ham and Pork is like, oh, he feels that Dark Tan is, like, letting him do things. But he's grateful for being ostensibly the person who calls the shot. Am I still the leader? Remember, that's, like, the first thing he says. Am I yes. still the leader? I think that that's also supposed to tell us something about sentience and intelligence because rats don't care about other rats' feelings. They're, the Kikis don't care about that. They're just like, I'm the strongest, so I'm the leader. But Dark Tan does care about Ham and Pork's feelings. And it is it is a very interesting, like he doesn't feel the need to be in charge, you know, just because he's the strongest and, and really the smartest in a lot of ways. He has all this knowledge about traps and stuff. And so, like, he's, like, really vital to their continued survival. And, like, you know, he knows how to defuse traps. Like, Nourishing knows all these things, but she freezes under pressure. So, like, like, like he he has the knowledge and he's able to bring it into situations. Like, when they're getting uh, ham and pork out of the, the rat pit. Nourishing rescuing Dark Tan, though, from the trap is hilarious like that whole situation was so good and yet so funny at the same time and i love how they call the 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 marks on uh dark tan the the teeth the bite marks of the bone rat i just loved it did Mm. you know that the bone rat was going to be death of rats i mean i feel like it's fairly obvious but like i think it's cool that they know about the bone rat like that that's part of their mythology yeah, this brings up an interesting thing because they have the bone rat, right? Which is death. Like, I think every sentient species is, I don't know whether that's the correct word. Like in Discworld anyway, implicitly understands that there's death. And I don't, there are certain animals who display 
behaviors they only display before they die. You know, like where they'll go a certain place or they'll they'll do certain things, you know. So it seems that they have a conception of death. But like what's interesting about rats is that they, you know, like the great rat under the ground where they seem to have a conception of God, where Maurice asks death, is there a cat God? Uh, which, which is really funny, you know, going off of what you said in the last one, how there always seems Bast. to be a cat God. And it's always Bast. Yeah. <laughs> it's always Bast. And death is like, no, there's no cat gods because that's right, too much work. Yeah. Well, maybe Bast doesn't do a lot of work on the Discworld. I don't know. <laughs> To be honest, if you ha- if you told a cat god to go do something, like its duties, it wouldn't do them. Because that's what cats are. Just to stay on uh, the our triad for a minute, I do also really like that Darktan... Darktan respects dangerous beings. And I loved that bit where he says that Darktan is a trap hunter for ideas. That he, that he goes ahead to figure out the traps of ideas and to make it so they're not traps anymore um, for the rats. And yeah. it, it is a very interesting division that you get at the end of the book between Dark Tan, who is the leader, right? He is the person who's making all the decisions and who is negotiating on the behalf of the rats with the humans. But Dangerous Beans is like their spiritual slash philosophical leader because Dark Tan is just like, I don't, I'm not... That's not my purview. That's your purview, which feels very different than the type of leadership under ham and pork. But it also speaks to a better kind of government because it caters to individual needs, you know, where where people need like an idea, like a a leader who understands ideas or a leader who understands faith. And I think this is just not to devolve this into a discussion on like the separation of church and state and why it's like kind of important and it should happen for any nation state really to have separate leaders for that it's it's definitely a better form of leadership under dark time i really liked all of the stuff with ham and pork like because ham and pork is like supposed to be a really strong rat right like he even before he could think he was really clever in some ways even though he's kind of like the person left. It's funny that as a normal rat, as a Kiki, he is like one of the most clever Kikis, but then as a part of the clan, he is one of the least equipped for sentient thought. Because because they talk about that. They talk about the fact that he's gone after a dog before. And that, you know, he he is the one organizing the rats, you know, when they're in a tight spot. Um, when he's in the rat maze, um, right, he's the one yelling at the Kikis like if we organized, there wouldn't be a dog that would come after us. It kind of gets into like, well, what happens after a leader is dead? Or like when a hero gets too old, like what we were talking yes, about. Yes, absolutely. Except with ham and pork is the world has like really rapidly outmoded ham and pork. Like he doesn't fit into it anymore, but he's still there. There we go. See, connection with other books. We're a great Ham and pork is the Cohen of the rats. There is a lot of wisdom that he has, though, that does apply, but only in certain circumstances. Because remember, his opinion of Maurice is always a cat is going to cat, right? Like a cat is going to act like a cat. And that's ultimately what saves them from from Spider in the end is Maurice being a cat. What did you think about the scene? Because this actually contrasts a little bit with what we were talking about with Spider and plans versus dreams. 
the scene with the rat maze where Dark Tan and Nourishing and Sardines rescue Ham and Pork, even though he ultimately dies. And Dark Tan has the opportunity to destroy all of it, to light the match and light the barn on fire and the barn is locked and he probably would have killed a lot of humans if he had done that, but then he decides not to. Why do you think he decided not to? Yeah. Well, first of all, to to be like, oh, a lot of dark things happen that yeah. That's I think that's the curse of sentience. That's what I think that is, where all of a sudden you're aware of yourself and you're aware of how you fit into the world in a broader mm-hmm. sense. Cause because like if you have a pet or an animal out in the wild and it encounters a human or it's encountered other animal species as well. And it kind of like implicitly understands. And like a lot of animals will help being like, don't go near this because it's got markings which designate it as poisonous or don't go near these trees. But when you're aware of yourself in a broader sense, then all of a sudden you have morals to consider. Mm-hmm. Like spider does these things, but is trying to bypass morals where it's just like, I'm not going to consider morals. I'm going to do what's right for rats. But doesn't consider the rats. Only considers the vengeance. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm going to do what's best for rats, but, like, I'm not going to care about morals or, like, the actual people I'm supposed to be, like, right. bettering. Whereas, like, Dark Tan has a moment where, like, he lights the match and it's, like, what's the thing he says? Like, where it's, you know, it says nourishing will remember it until she's, like, a very, very old rat. Yeah, let me find it. I'm trying to remember that because that's also, like... Like, he, 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 this is the moment where he stares into the abyss and he finds that the abyss stares back into him. This is the nourishing talking to her grandchildren when she's old. He struck it on an old bit of iron, said Mm. nourishing, and then he walked out along the beam with it flaring. And down below, I could see all the crowd, the hay racks and the straw all over the place and the people milling around just like, ha, just like rats. And I thought... If you drop that, mister, the place will fill with smoke in a few seconds and they've locked the doors. And by the time they realize it, they'll be caught. Ha, huh, yeah, like rats in a barrel and we'll be away along the gutters. But he just stood there looking down until the batch went out. Then he put it down and helped us with ham and pork and never said a word about it. I asked him about it later on after all the stuff with the piper and everything. And he said, yes, rats in a barrel. And that's all he said about it. It's that mirroring, you know, like... I. I don't think we should turn to Nietzsche for any kind, <laughs> like for every instance of of nihilism. You know, like there are other philosophers and 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 schools of thought and stuff. But I think that that mirroring of when you hunt monsters, you're inviting monsters into your life. When he holds that match, all of a sudden he's confronted with the fact that like this is exactly what humans do to rats, and they don't care about it, and so like death pleading before Azrael, like someone has to care. The book has to stop somewhere with someone who cares. I think it is Dark and Tan that says later, this war has been going on forever and we can't, we can't keep doing it. We can't keep doing the same things and expecting different results. Cause like the Kikis don't know. They don't know any better. Yeah. They have no, they have no concept of how many of their kind is slaughtered. Like they understand and can be taught the writing system and they follow directions from the clan. But the clan is the only one who really knows what and they're confronted with what humans do and like the poisons and the traps they see in the sheds. Although they see what humans do to the Kikis as just as bad. 
as what they do to the clan because yeah. ham and pork is like infuriated when he is confronted with the cages of the starving rats who are eating themselves even though ham and pork himself is like yeah of course rats eat rats like next thing you're gonna be telling me that that's bad you know like to him it's not a big deal but it's you eat another rat out of necessity right not out of like cruelty and so yeah not when you're put into a situation and you're told right and so even ham and pork who doesn't who doesn't necessarily get all the things that Dangerous Beans and Dark Tan are talking about. Um, even he is infuriated by that. Yeah, Hammond Pork still recognizes that there's something wrong there. Because, like, the Kikis, I think, are meant to, like, allegorically be some form of, like, second class. Or, like, lower class to the clan. And, like, you know, all of their things are based entirely on instinct. They react to rage, they react to fear, and they react in large numbers. Well, and I think that's part of Dangerous Beans' story arc is realizing, like, because he's so disheartened when the clan breaks out of fear when confronted with Spider. Like, they just run away like a mob of rats, right? Because they pointed out that a rat is pretty smart, but a bunch of rats together is, like, swayed more by instinct than it is by intelligence. And he says, like, I thought we were more than just rats. But I think a big part of his arc is realizing that being a rat is fine. Like, that it's okay to just be a rat. You know, like, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be more than that. Well, and it's this idea that, and this goes back to Mr. Bunsy, is that for Dangerous Beans, being more than a rat for a long time was being like the animals in Mr. Bunsy, which meant being more human, right? Because the animals in Mr. Bunsy are anthropomorphized. And so... The idea is, is that in order to be better than the Kikis, we have to be more human. And I think the realization is, no, that isn't what's better than the Kikis. Like, we have to form, we have to forge our own path about what's better. Let's talk about Maurice, the cat, who has a very different view of the world than the rats do. I love Maurice. Maurice is such fun to read. Because, like... Like, I haven't seen the full film, but, like, Hugh Laurie's performance as Maurice is, like, so much mm-hmm. fun. But, like, even just reading his dialogue, it's always so, like, acerbic. I think that, like, I think that's the, the most accurate. It's so acerbic and witty. I think he struggles with sentience in a different way than the rats do, mainly because cats are... Cats are predators in a way that rats aren't. I'm not trying to say rats aren't predators because they are omnivores. They will eat anything and they can hunt. But cats are a different kind of predator. Yeah, but also pigs are omnivores too. Maurice is sort of confronted, like ham and pork, who is confronted with like thinking as being something that's difficult for him. Thinking is not difficult for Maurice. Maurice, cats are intelligent enough to where the sentience problem didn't necessarily add more intelligence, but it did add awareness. And that's what Maurice struggles with is the awareness part because he is now aware of how cruel his instincts make him. And he's aware of the fact that having gained sentience, he gained it by eating a sentient rat. Right. And so he, he has to deal with the guilt of that, which guilt is not something cats are used to experiencing. Yeah, and I think doubly he's also puzzled by how quickly the rats move on, or the the mice move on from it. Where it's like, well, was it a long time ago? Yes. Do you feel bad about it? Yes. Okay, that's it. Like, forgiveness is also 
a concept that animals aren't like i think all throughout this book we're the the readers are like confronted with the joy of what makes us human by having animals experience those things and concepts like individually for the first time where it's like where we're able to empathize and be good because we have the capacity for forgiveness we have the capacity to feel bad for the things that we've done like yeah human beings can do awful awful things but there are some people who feel bad which is a good first step yeah do you like how he always checks now which he keeps bringing up because he wants it to be very clear that he always checks. Like, now they're aware that there are certain animals that are sentient. And so it goes completely against... Because, like, as far as I'm aware, I'm not any kind of biologist. I'm not an expert on animals, pack dynamics, hunting dynamics. But it feels like they'll... Like, animals that hunt will pick off any prey that's available. And so then, like... To go counter to that nature and have to check whether that animal then has a conscience and can express that to you or consciousness even like that that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of which this is I'm not endorsing Philip K. Dick's view of empathy in um, do Android stream of electric sheep, but it does remind me when he's discussing. There is a uh, a part of the book where at the beginning because what they do is they use empathy as a way of testing for humans versus androids because androids look so much like humans that sometimes when they escape and they and they're so yeah. afraid that androids are going to like escape and replace them or whatever and so what they do is they test for empathy what empathy is though they it it's funny the way they define empathy versus what empathy actually is um because they don't have any empathy for androids which is the whole point is that a commentary on how hypocritical bigots are? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's a very interesting book. But there is a scene where some okay. they're talking about animals and the fact that predators, and I think cats specifically get mentioned um, here, uh, predators can't have empathy because how would you, how would a how would a predator that is an animal be able to eat if it had empathy, right, for like what it was eating? And so... It is interesting that, like, Maurice develops empathy. He's not able to just, like, live his life carefree like he was before, right? He has to be very careful. But then that's fascinating that some humans, I won't say all humans because they are terrible human beings, even today, that we mentioned earlier who want to pass laws and things like that in the most, like, mundane bureaucratic way to not have empathy. Like, it's amazing and kind of, like, counterintuitive that we as humans have empathy because we are apex predators. We're top of the food. Like there's not really any way that an animal can kill us. If we don't go out and like put ourselves into mm -hmm. that position, there's nothing which predates upon humans. Um, like naturally, you know, like a Fox, a Fox predates upon a rabbit. And like, that's fine. There's, there's nothing like that for humans. Logically, we shouldn't have empathy. Well, but I think we humans have the ability to shut their empathy off is the problem. Yes, but like the fact that we have the capacity for I th I don't know, like there's probably like a load of biological and like studies into it. 
ultimately that's where dick's metaphor breaks down right um because that's what they're trying to say is that androids are like predators and humans are like herd animals and that's why they have empathy but androids don't but at the end of the day those lines aren't as clear cut and that's kind of what the book is about is the book more interesting than the film because both blade runner and the sequel are very dull i think oh i love blade runner the director's cut i love it so much I don't like Blade Runner yet, yeah, Batty. I don't like Blade Runner 2049. That's like a controversial opinion, but I don't like it. No, I love I love the original Blade Runner, but specifically the director's cut. The theatrical cut is not very good. But the book is very different from the film. It's like almost a completely different story. What do you think of Maurice's goal to eventually get enough money to where he can basically bribe an old lady to keep him as a pet? I think that's really sad. Yeah, because he doesn't see himself as, like, cute enough. Yeah, that, like, but it's also, like, cats that don't have the scent, like, it's the same thing where Dark Tan is confronted with the actions of, like, what he's doing and how that plays into how humans treat rats. Maurice is confronted with like how humans have pets. Like the cats who are sentient, like they will just get that and they don't have to think about that. Whereas now Maurice is aware of the lack that he has of this thing. And I know like it's not for every sentient animal. Gaspo despises being a pet. You know, like, he, he, he even escapes from a house after getting it supposedly as a reward. But, like, I think it's really sad. That's all that Maurice wants is kind of, like, a place to settle down in and be treated kindly. Because I presume that out in the streets, it's not very kind. He's, like, missing parts of his ears and parts of his tail. And, like, even yeah. before he gets burned, right, in the fire, like, there is sort of a commentary on there on the kinds of animals that people tend to keep as pets and the way that, like, ugly animals or broken animals tend to not. Yeah, I was about to say, that's something we see in shelters a lot. Yeah, I. it almost makes me wish, though, that Maurice, like, would end up in Lanker with Nanny Og. Because I feel like him and Grebo would work something out eventually. Like, they would not be friends at first, but I think they would work it out eventually. And I feel like Nanny Og would take care of him. But it's also like, Maurice is not a young cat. He's not a kitten. No. You know, he's an no. old cat. And that's something as well we see where people will just donate puppies after they get too big. You know, that whole puppy is for life, not for Christmas. They always have a hard time getting people to adopt older animals too. Which, by the way, is really silly because older animals, a lot of times, they just want to sleep all the time. So, like, if you're looking for a low-key pet, it's much easier to take care of an older dog than it is to take care of a younger dog. I really wish I had the space for it. There was there's a pet shop in in um the closest big town to me. I don't know whether I've said it on the podcast the name of it, but now I'm aware of like not doxing myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I was aware of that before. But for ages they had this like old parrot in a cage and her name was Ruby and it was like she's an old parrot. She's like really companionable. She's, you know, hand trained and stuff so you know like She'll come and, like, sit in your hand, and you can, like, feed her from your hand, and she'll, like, potter about the house, and she knows how to speak, like, you know, a few words and phrases that she's learned. And it was, like, she sat there for ages, which I thought was really, really sad, but, like, 
I just wish I had the money and the space or I would have bought that bird. Like, that would have been really cool. Because you already brought up Gaspode, I will say I kind of compared these two characters in my mind, right? Because they have kind of similar origin stories, like, you know, magically suddenly being able to talk and, you know, having the sentience that comes along with that. I do think they're very different characters um, in ways that you have you've pointed out. And we also had a reference to Maurice before in a, a section Gaspode was kind of the POV character for in one of the earlier books. Do you think that Maurice and Gaspode could team up if there was a book about the two of them? I think that would be an interesting dynamic because both of them are like animals that can talk, but also like play into societal or like they use the fact that society implicitly understands that animals don't talk. Yeah. Every time Maurice did that, I was like, that's exactly what Gaspode does. Like, especially in moving pictures. Yeah. <laughs> woof, woof. Yeah. But, the, and they're both kind of, and they're both kind of scammers, even though I think Maurice is a little bit more calculating than, than Gaspode is. Yeah. Like Gaspode uses human nature against itself where he like, he knows he can beg and people will feel bad for him and give him food. Whereas Maurice is like, Here's a sca- like he understands that the human mind is also complex enough to require a, a scam for it to be tricked. <laughs> what I thought was really funny was like, did that cat just talk? And Maurice being like, would it be helpful if I said no? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't try to hide it the way Gaspode does because a lot of times Gaspode will be like woof woof like and like hide it, whereas Maurice just doesn't seem to give a fuck. Like he's just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, which is such a cat thing to do. Let's talk about the humans briefly. So there are really two humans that are of import oh, in I this I guess book. we'll talk about the humans in this book about talking animals. Ugh. <laughs> I guess. But Keith and Militia. Ugh. So Keith, who we don't find out is Keith until about a third of the way of the book. Uh, I like that Maurice doesn't know his name is Keith. He just calls him the stupid looking kid. And then even after he finds out that his name is Keith, still refers to him as the stupid looking kid. You have a name? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you name? never said. Yes. Uh, He's from Ockmorepork. He is a very good piper. He, he's just a good musician in general, it sounds like. Um, raised at the Guild of Musicians. At the Guild of Musicians. Like Buddy Holly. <laughs> I really enjoyed Keith. I, did, I thought Militia was a bit like, she graded on me a bit. Like in her early appearances, which she's supposed I think to might have been the point, yeah. Yeah, but like straight away, I was invested in. I was like, I love this stupid-looking kid because <laughs> he's kind of like the straight man to an awful lot of what Maurice is saying. Like the rats are all like, yeah, okay, and they're like, er, mm. some of them are like, mm. like especially Peaches, where she's like, <clears throat> before yeah. everything. But I love Peaches. Keith is just sort of like that. Doesn't make any sense. Like, what are you saying? No, that's wrong, Maurice. I have a theory about Keith, and I'm really interested to see what you think of it. Okay, go on. Keith is a reversal of Carrot. I like that. Because he is a stupid-looking kid. He's, he seems to be a lot more simple than he actually is, but he is not the third son of a king. He is not somebody who is important in any way in the grand scheme of things. And he doesn't have the charisma of Carrot. Yeah, and I think that like it's important for the Discworld to show this because we've had we have Carrot who chooses to forgo his like 
sacred divine right of kings, whatever the fuck, you know, in favor of helping out the common people. By and large, especially, like, in a book which seems so fixated on class relations and, and improving rights for lower classes, you know, quote-unquote, and, like, empathizing with their struggles, it needs to be someone who isn't anyone. You know, because, yeah. like, that's how we end up getting... That's how change ends up getting happening, because, like... And it's the same thing with, you know... Pe- people going out and protesting against anti-LGBTQ laws, where it's like, eventually you need the people in power to listen. And so I think that, like, that's also what Keith is. that you Like, the common people who will just have empathy and will do the right thing because they feel it's right, you know? Well, also I think Keith, uh, not to, like, use this term lightly, I guess, but Keith is an ally, right? He... Does it, he's I'm not an a, ally. He's not an important person, but he is human, which means that he has a little bit more agency, I guess, or power than than the rats do. But he rolls with it. Like, there's no point at which he's like, I'm talking to rats. Like, you know, he's like part of it. He's part of them. And he he understands and empathizes with them and listens to them, right? Because sometimes even when he's talking to militia, he'll say, well, Dangerous Beans says, you know, like it. it is a very, he is such a good like advocate for them in some ways because he's able to represent humans to humanity. But like you said, he understands them in a way that perhaps even Carrot wouldn't. Yeah, but it's also like, like you have that contrast between people when they go down and they find all the rats in cages downstairs where militia is just like they're rats and he's like no get them out of there like all of a sudden that's his switch on point and you know like even when he goes against the rat catchers but especially like that moment where he's like no get them out of there this is wrong like he spent long enough with the rats and listened to them long enough that he knows that they're upset by this and knows and understands that this is something, like, terribly morally wrong. First of all, I thought it was hilarious that Militia dosed the rat catchers with a laxative and that the antidote was that more was so laxative. Funny. That was great. Yeah. Um, but but Militia says, you would have poisoned them. Like, I, I had, like, Militia had to step in and be like, no, I'm just going to give them this laxative and we'll pretend it's poison. But, like, Keith was going to put rat poison in that sugar. Yeah. Like, that's how he feels about the rats. You know, that he would have defended them and used, used, you know, done, actually killed two people in order to, you know, get them to confess to what they had done. Well, this comes back to what um Lord, like what Lord Downey, when, when Lord Downey is confronted by Carrot and Vimes at the end of Men of Arms, like that realization that Vimes has is that like never get cornered by like an actual good person because he will just kill you outright. Lord Crucius. Or is it Lord Crucius? Yeah, Lord oh, yeah, Downey's he, still yeah. alive. Yeah. Downey replaces him. That's what it is. He's that good of a person where he just like understands that like killing these people will be of benefit. He does that moral math. Uh, and like, what's that line from um, A Knight's Tale? Oh, you've been found wanting. You've been put in the balance and you've been found wanting. 
So we've already talked about Militia a little bit. She's obviously the Nancy Drew character. There's even a scene where her father starts talking about her like she's Nancy Drew, like the case of the smugglers and the windmill and, you know, all that stuff. Like you said, she is pretty grating at first, although I think... And she says a lot of things that are really insensitive. Like, she just cannot seem to grasp that the rats are people and that they have feelings for, like, a good three quarters of the book. But once she gets it, she gets it. It's that hopeful view where you think that, like, if you deliberate and you demonstrate uh, and show people uh, you know who aren't oppressed the struggles of oppressed people that they'll eventually understand like that's that's what you hope for that even if it takes time eventually it'll happen like that, that like that's the ideal case and i think we're confronted with the reality then in the town you know where it's like like the people are kind of dead set against this and they realize that this is going to be a long process although i did like what was his name mr schlamman the, the, the one that wakes who, up. Who, yeah. <laughs> the one who wakes up and they're like, oh, what's all this? And they're like, oh, it's the future. And he's like, oh, I was wondering when that was going to happen. <laughs> he calls Maurice Kitty and they're like, no, you can't. You can't call cats that anymore. And he's like, oh, OK, sorry. Uh, what is he? No, hold on. What does he say? Because it's really funny. Yeah. Wake me up when they bring the tea in, will you, puss? Er, it's not allowed to call cats puss if you're over 10 years old, sir, said Nourishing. Clause 19B, said Maurice firmly. No one is to call cats by silly names unless they intend to give them an immediate meal. <laughs> I, I call my dog exclusively uh, Buddy. Uh, buddy. I always like call my dog Little Dude. I was like, Little Dude. I'm like, yeah. he walks into the room and I'm like, hey, buddy. <laughs> hey, buddy. He probably thinks that's his name at that po- at this point. What about the Piper? So uh, a big part of this is obviously the framework of the Pied Piper. And there, even though Keith is a fake Pied Piper, right? It's a scam. There is a real Piper um, who's out there. And there's all these stories about him, right? Like that he stole the town's children once, which is, of course, the story of the Pied Piper. Which, by the way, I should mention that the most famous version of the Pied Piper isn't actually from the Grimm's brothers. It's from uh, Robert Browning. Um, who didn't make up the tale, but he's the one who put it in the form that we know it best now, the poem. It is worth acknowledging that a lot of these are kind of like commonly held word of mouth things in this. Like, right. And we attribute it to one person because they're the person to like put it to paper, which I th- I think is like kind of fascinating where you've taken like oral history and then it's like, well, it's that person's because they're the first person to write it down. So the Piper, he... <laughs> He led away all the children. He uh, made the plague of mimes worse, which was that was a pretty good one. Uh, And he turned a mayor of a city when he didn't pay him into a badger. And he's expensive. That's like those are the things that we keep hearing about him. And he is expensive. Um, So they do call the rat piper in and he comes in. What did you think about this whole showdown between him and Keith and uh, the conversation they have afterwards? Hmm. Well, I will say, first of all, that like what I take the moral of the Pied Piper, the tale of the Pied Piper is that you should pay. You should fucking pay creatives when you get them to pay do work people. Or else. God, pay people for their work. Compensation's important. Yeah, that's why I'm like, uh, like, like with among the stacks, I'm like, well, I'm going to do crowdfunding and I hope that has enough to pay people. But now that I have a job full time or at least for the next six months, I'm like, 
well, if needs be, I can pay people out of my own pocket because people deserve to be compensated for the work that, like, I'm willing to pay out of my own wages because I, I, like, that's something I believe in. And that's something that they talk about at the end as well, where it's like, well, we can't have people believe that the piper shouldn't be paid. And he says most of the stories people tell isn't he, I didn't even make those up. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's fascinating. But what I think is, like, that whole conversation, more so than the duel, is really interesting because, like, it addresses the fact that, like, I think it goes back to that that sort of oral tradition and, like, even Greek myths and Irish myths as well are the same. It was, like, there's loads of different versions of these things, you know? And, like, it kind of rapidly blooms out into a whole bunch of stuff that, like, the teller doesn't necessarily intend when they tell the first story. Yeah. Uh, And how stories can take... Like, this is something that I think comes straight from Witches Abroad as well, that stories can take on a life of their own if you let them. Yeah, I mean, and we get some other references to stories too, right? Like the Dick Livingston, which is Dick Whittington and Ken Livingston. It's kind of an anagram of both. And so, yeah, like these stories Um, take on... Yeah, push and boots. So yeah, these stories do take on a life of their own, and they do shape the way that we view reality, which is the point of Witches Abroad, right? But this book is saying the problem with that is, I mean, Witches Abroad had a problem with it too, but this book is specifically looking at it through that lens of class, right? Um, and through childhood stories, specifically. Yeah, because the, uh, the, the, the rat piper shows up, and they do the calculation, and they say, oh, well, it's they think it's going to cost them $300. Right. And then he's like, "Whisk a thousand. And they're like, we don't have that. And he's like, well, I'll take my payment one way or the other. Where it's like, you're paying for the, I think that like $700 gap is you're paying for the myth, the prestige of the rat, uh, the rat piper actually being in town. The final thing I wanted to talk about, the final reference I wanted to say was the town watch who is Sergeant Doppelpunkt and Corporal Noft. Doppelpunkt means colon, like the punctuation, and Noft... Does it? Yeah, and Noft obviously oh. sounds like knobs. And so there is this this little correlation that we get um, between the Ogmore Pork Watch and this watch. I just think it's funny that we have like those two characters. I didn't even know that. Every watch has these two characters, right? Like, that seems, like, archetypical, you know, like, they're they're old as dirt. They're essentially, like, part of the furniture. Like, you see that in cop procedurals as well, you know, where, like, even the, even, like, Hot Fuzz, you know, where, where Nick Angel moves from the city to this, like, out-of-the-way rural police station. And you can kind of tell who, who the knobs and who the colons are. Yeah. <laughs> In the most recent watch books, they've talked a lot about how these people that Vimes and Carrot and Angua and the rest of them are training, these recruits get trained up in the Warpork watch and then they move to other places. And you can see these like watches starting to do things in the way that the Warpork watch is doing. And so you have like people that Vimes trained in Pseudopolis and in Stolat. And I don't think that's what's happening here um, with with these two characters but it is interesting to see like even maurice you know talks about like we barely escaped from the watch back in the last city and so like there is this idea that like what what the ankh Morpork watch is doing is being 
exported to other places, that you are starting to get watches that are doing that same kind of policing, which, as we pointed out, is a very fantasy, non-discriminatory policing. Yeah, well, that transitions us into our death sighting. So we do have one death sighting. Look at and, us. We've, and, we've got transitions, too. We're yeah, a great podcast. We're great. We've, we've, we did this totally on purpose. Yeah, there's one death sighting. Um, it's on page 232 of my book in 233. So it's when Maurice and Dangerous Beans die. Which, by the way, did you think Maurice was really dead when it says he laid down and died? Like, I was worried. I was worried yeah. that, like that was the outcome of the book. That all the rats would get away. I forgot that that's what happened. And I had a moment where I was like, no! Uh, but, like... To be fair, I did also think Gaspode died uh, at the end of the fifth ele- elephant. I was like, no, Gaspode. <laughs> the death of rats, uh, the bone rat, uh, comes for dangerous beans. And death comes for Maurice. Although, like, I like that when Maurice is dead, he remembers all the other times that he's died. And Death is like, uh, I haven't seen you for a while, Maurice. Like, they have a relationship like that he doesn't remember while he's alive, but he remembers it when, when he's dead. But I also really like that he uh, tries to go after the Death of Rats. And he says, okay, Mester, let's hear you talk. And then Death grabs him by the scruff. <laughs> Desist from attacking my associate, Maurice, which I think is great. What did, what did you actually think about the whole nine lives and Maurice giving up one of his lives for dangerous beans? I'm a real sucker for, and this is something that I'm carrying into my writing, and especially when I write fantasy, is, like, taking concepts and making them, like, apply literally. So I think this is fascinating. I think it creates a lot of narrative tension, but then it also... It also resolves this tension between Maurice and the rats, right? Because he he ate one of their compatriots and that's what caused him to become sentient but then he's able to give life back to dangerous beings yeah he's finally able to square up that moral math yeah and death i think is confused at first because he says but he's a rat and i don't think it's because death by saying that when he says it's but he's a rat what death is doing is reading this as a story right cats aren't supposed to love rats right they're supposed to eat rats that's that, I mean, I, it's really hard to think of a, another relationship between two animals that is as proverbially aggressive as the relationship between cats and rats, right? Like, You're like sold they're by Tom and Jerry, right? And so, I think even death here is kind of being sold a story that he has to quickly unlearn, like because he's a rat, you know, like yeah, and it's again like, uh, like because I think something we haven't we, we kind of like glanced around as well is that like cats and mice kind of function in the same way that humans and mice do where like predator and prey kind of takes on the role of oppressor and oppressed classes mm-hmm. and so like it, it's another moment again where someone who's part of the oppressor demonstrates empathy and like understands the plight of the oppressed well, and I think he also understands how important Dangerous Beans is to the rats. Like, he does it for Dangerous Beans because he cares about Dangerous Beans, but I think he also knows that the death of Dangerous Beans would break them in a lot of ways. Yeah. So he does it for everyone. There are surprisingly few footnotes in this book. Um, in fact, I only counted two. The first one is on page 35, and to me it's the best footnote as well. Well, when you're when you're hungry, you'll give it away for half a slice of bread and scrape. 
Footnote, you scrape the butter on, then you scrape the butter off, then you eat the bread. To me, that's very funny because I know exactly what they're talking about. You scrape the butter on, you scrape the butter off, and then you eat the bread. Um, where you don't want too much butter on the toast, you just kind of want the the like sheen of butter in a way. I don't want to make a joke before I, I ask, and you can cut this out of the podcast. Is that f- like a... I don't want to sound insensitive. Is that like a like a a growing up like kind of poor thing or just do you don't like butter? I think both probably because you're always taught when you're growing up without a lot of money to save food, right? To yeah. not be wasteful with food. But also I think there are legitimately a lot of people who like their toast that way where it's not too much butter, where it's just kind of that flavor but not the the oiliness. Yeah. I think it's kind of both. Cuz like yeah, yeah, because like I understand that that's it's meant to be like a a, th- a thing about lack where you want to save it as for as long as possible, which mm-hmm. like I also understand from growing up that way. But uh, also like my solution is just to not have. I don't like butter. I never have it on bread or anything. Although it does remind me also of uh, Bilbo's statement from um, Lord of the Rings about yes. butter being scraped over too much bread, which is the best statement about burnout that I've ever heard. No, there's a French expression that they use when they're tired. Sometimes they, they say "je suis crevé," c r e v e accent e, because it would be feminine for both of us. But crevé um, literally means punctured, like so. You're like a tire that's deflated. Oh, I like that too. And I think about that a lot. Yeah, that's really good. Did you also find that one to be the best footnote, or did you like the one about Mister Clicky better? Uh, yeah, I'm open. I have the one open on. It's not that I think it's better. I just like, I like the rats had found one in the town of Quorum, which I like that they've been to Quorum as well. Yeah. Which is where they'd got the Mr. Clickies. They were on a shelf labeled kitty toys along with a box of squeaky rubber rats called, with great imagination, Mr. Squeaky. The rats had tried to set off traps by poking them with a rubber rat on the end of the stick, but the squeak when the trap shut upset everyone. No one cared what happened about what happened to a Mr. Clicky. And I like that the, at the end during the contest where they push the Mr. Clicky out for the for the mm. the rat piper. What was something that made you laugh out loud? See, I think it's like that bit at the end with the old man who wakes up. <laughs> but it's also like there's a lot of Maurice dialogue just throughout where he's just like being really snarky. When Militia is like, do you want me to carry you downstairs? And he's like, do you want me to claw your, do you want me to claw your face off? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. Darktan says something like that, too, to the mayor when he says, can I carry you up to, like, can I pick you up and put you on the desk? And he says, can I bite your finger off? <laughs> I wonder, is that on purpose? That Like, that's a um, correlation that they've drawn. Like, he learned between... from Maurice. Like, you know how sometimes when you start hanging out with someone for too long that you start kind of talking like them a little bit or you like borrow things that they say? The thing that made me laugh out loud, honestly, and Sam can back this up because she often has to deal with me just laughing uproariously while reading Terry Pratchett books, having no context for why I'm laughing so hard. But this was the one that made me laugh the most, which was uh, during the duel between the Piper and Keith. When Keith is playing the trombone, which he's never played before, <laughs> and uh, which I also thought was very funny, there was a tune there. The instrument squeaked and wheezed because Corporal Knopf had occasionally used the thing as a hammer, but there was a tune, quite fast, almost jaunty. You could tap your feet to it. 
Someone tapped his feet to it. Sardines emerged from a crack in a nearby wall going, one, two, three, four, under his breath. The crowd watched him dance ferociously across the cobbles until he disappeared into a drain. Then they broke into applause. The piper looked at Keith. Did that one have a hat on? He said. I didn't notice, said Keith. Your go. And like... It's funny because I don't know why that one made me laugh so hard considering the fact that Sardines has been dancing the whole book and that people keep being like, does that rat have a hat? But for some reason, this like punchline like just sold the rest of the jokes for me. Like it got funnier every time it happened. And this was the funniest one. Because all I could think of is this terrible sounding trombone playing and then suddenly Sardine's just like giving it everything he's got dancing across the square in like this hat from like one rat hole to the next rat hole and everyone just staring and then the piper going like, did that one have a hat on? Like for him, that was the most unbelievable part. The fact that Sardine's was wearing the hat, not the fact that one rat danced across the square like that to Keith's song. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I also I found the other two footnotes in this book and yeah, neither of them are really that great. There's there's two. One at the start of chapter three on page thirty eight about how it's hard to translate sir into rat. And then the oh, other right, one's at yeah. the start of chapter five on seventy page seventy seven, where uh Dark Tan is being lowered, uh move me in about two paws, footnote, rat measurement, about an inch. Eh. What was something that made you think? It's something from fairly early on where they show up. They show up in bad blints, and I'm gonna find. See those men on the door? They look like watchmen. They've got big truncheons, and everyone's showing them a bit of paper as they go past. I don't like the look of that," said Maurice. "That looks like government to me." We haven't done anything wrong," said the kid. "Not here, anyway." You never know with governments. A cab. Am I right? A cab. Yeah, and like it really comes back to a lot of what we've talked about so far in this episode that um people often don't have to do anything other than just exist for people to have a problem like it's not books people have a problem with it's it's banning people yeah absolutely i i really like that i think that i've already mentioned the two things that made me think the most um because as you said there's not as much of that in here beyond like the extended metaphor of the rats which is very good But I think the two things that made me think the most were the dreams versus plans thing that Dangerous Beans tells Spider, but also the trap hunter idea. The the idea that like Dark Tan is the one who undoes the traps, the physical traps, but Dangerous Beans is the one who undoes the philosophical traps that makes that makes the darkness behind the eyes safe for the rest of the, the rats, which I I really like. Something that I, I remembered as we were doing the... We've returned to um, Discord books having chapters. Oh, yeah. I or forgot segments. to mention that. Yeah. this because I think it's because it is a YA book. Um, yeah. Because YA and books generally have chapters. books also have that. Yes. And no, no references to sort. No reference. One yeah, of the places no. they, were, they were never in. Yep. Yep. They were never in sort. All right, in our next episode, Vimes must return to his roots in Nightwatch. Finally, we get to this book. Yeah, this is the book that many people think is the pinnacle of Terry Pratchett's writing career. It is up there with The Fifth Elephant for me. I can never tell which one I like more. I think I like The Fifth Element more for reasons we'll talk about. But in terms of like good writing and a good book, Nightwatch is right up there 
Um, with the well, fi- I'm going elephant. to go and because fu- uh, now I'm going to be like, well, I guess I'm going to have to get a physical copy of this. I'm going to have to find ah, it. It's so good. All right. I'm really excited to talk about Nightwatch. And so is Lossie, by the way, because Lossie is already reading it. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me mainly on Twitter at Spicy Nigel. Um, more recently, I've been tweeting about uh, the fact that I did a double feature back to back watch Banshees of Inish Aaron and The Menu in the cinema, which was really good. I feel like I have to talk to someone about why that's a good feature film. I love doing double features back to back and like watching yeah. things that go thematically together. I'd love to like sit down and talk with someone about it because I think it's fascinating what goes well together. I've been retweeting. Oh yeah, because I have I I haven't been on a podcast really to announce this since it happened. I'm acting in a uh, video game. Oh wow! I didn't know that. In a in a visual novel, yeah. Um, it's called Nadini Maiha. It's based off of um Irish mythology, and I I'm the um the guide. Uh, I so like the be there's actual Irish words and phrases in it. And you can get like translations of them, and I voice the Irish words so you know how they're pronounced. So I'm like the the guidebook in it. Oh wow, that's amazing! Congrats! I'm excited to see it. Hopefully, it'll be available here. Uh, yeah, it's like it's available on Steam. Okay. It's not like a, a console region exclusive. So it's like if if you have Steam, if you're able to get Steam in your country, it should be available. Yeah, that and I've become a. I'm I'm trying to do. I, I did some like designs based off of famous art and then also like i'm kind of a book talker now so hopefully i'll also get to talk about terry pratchett on my tiktok which is just also at spicy nigel and then shows people know hyperfixations among the stacks is, is is doing some some exciting things as well i think it's quite good i think that anyone listening to us right now should go check that out um because nigel has has, as you probably know from listening to this podcast, Nigel has a great imagination and is able to execute some really wonderful ideas quite well in that in that podcast. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and the aforementioned Storygraph at the Bi Paradox. So people can also follow me on Storygraph at Spicy Nigel. You can follow both of us because we'll both be doing the um, the the Mumble Challenge. You can also find me on the aforementioned host of the reading challenge, Monkey Off My Backlog, where my colleague and partner, Sam, are currently uh, working on a couple of things off of our backlog. Uh, We just released an episode on The Godfather and an episode on The Sopranos. If you're listening to this, you've probably already, probably our first reading episode is already available, um, as well as a episode with Lazi where we talked about British girl groups from the 90s. So you can follow, find all of that at Monkey Backlog on Twitter or anywhere that you get your podcasts. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. And far downstream, a handsome cat, with only a few bare patches still in its fur, jumped off a barge, sauntered along the dock, and entered a large and prosperous town. It spent a few days beating up the local cats and getting the feel of the place, and, most of all, in sitting and watching. Finally, it saw what it wanted. It followed a young lad out of the city. 
He was carrying a stick over his back, on the end of which was a knotted handkerchief of the kind used by people in story circumstances to carry all their worldly goods. The cat grinned to himself. If you knew their dreams, you could handle people. The cat followed the boy all the way to the first milestone along the road, where the boy stopped for a rest and heard, Hey, stupid looking kid, want to be Lord Mayor? Nah, down here, kid. Because some stories end, but old stories go on, and you gotta dance to the music if you want to stay ahead. The end.